Today on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast, we have a fascinating episode with a wealth management veteran who's transformed his firm into a full-fledged asset manager with significant private markets capabilities. Lorenzo Esparza is the CEO and founding principal at Manhattan West, where he leveraged his legal, corporate, and financial experience to form the modern version of an investment firm. Lorenzo manages the firm's strategic direction while overseeing his day-to-day operations. He's focused on building a firm using a top-down approach to working with clients across a broad suite of services and investment categories, and in particular, alternative investments. Lorenzo is looking to position the firm as a leader in the investment industry, serving high net worth clients, family offices, and institutions across the United States. Lorenzo began his career in financial services at Alliance Bernstein before joining J.P. Morgan Securities. He then launched Manhattan West immediately following his tenure at J.P. Morgan. Lorenzo and I had a fascinating conversation that spanned the evolution of wealth management how advisors are approaching the alt space, how platforms and tech are democratizing access to alts and Manhattan West's unique model. Thanks, Lorenzo, for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights. We're going mainstream. Lorenzo, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. Oh, excited to have you on. I think you have built such an interesting model in both the alts world, in the wealth world, and you have a fascinating journey to how you got there. would love to start there and talk about your background that has culminated in the founding of Manhattan West. Absolutely. I always talk about the fact that I was raised by parents that didn't have a lot of money. In fact, they were immigrants from Mexico, and they said, you should be a doctor or a lawyer. And uh, I didn't like blood, so I decided to go to law school. Went to Santa Barbara for undergrad and then Loyola for law school. I knew right away I didn't want to practice law, but I did appreciate getting that legal training. And, uh, you know, got into the capital markets through college and law school and always was kind of paying attention to what was happening. Eventually started working for Bernstein in Los Angeles, moved to New York for their training program, came back to L.A. to build a practice eventually wound up at J.P. Morgan and loved it there as well. I thought Bernstein was first class. Same thing with J.P. Morgan, just great institutions. And I learned a lot from both and had the opportunity to leave J.P. Morgan and was considering options, including Merrill Lynch and UBS and Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs and kind of traditional big bulge bracket firms. And I had just got to the point where I was studying fintech, and I know you're a fintech investor, and I was studying kind of wealth tech and where I thought the industry was going. And so rather than take the recruiting check to come over to the big firm, I took zero and (laughs) decided to launch this firm. I've never regretted it a day since our launch. And really the goal was to try to create something different. And I know people say that, but we really had a different viewpoint about how we could create not just a private client business that had some unique deliverables, but also an 
asset management or alternatives platform. So we're unique in that regard. I think Bernstein has a private client business and an investment business. So maybe to some extent, I'm paying homage to that history, as does JP Morgan in some regard. But we like the boutique nature of how we can interact with clients. We've created this model that allows us to serve private clients in a unique way and then also have this alternatives business, which allows us to play in a lot of different circles and really get what I describe as an information advantage, understanding what's happening in venture and private equity and real estate and private debt and obviously the traditional capital markets, but actually being investing in those things is different than, hey, I'm gonna allocate to Blackstone or I'm gonna allocate to Apollo. So we've been deeply engaged as operators of the business. On that point, just because it's a fascinating point that you make in terms of understanding private markets and the referenceability of that to pretty much all the other aspects of your wealth management business, how much does the exposure that you have to private markets, funds, directs, it sounds like you're even doing stuff in crypto now, how much does that inform the way you think about the wealth management business and managing your clients' money and more broadly financial lives? Sure. I think it's everything. Think about how we used to manage portfolios in traditional sense at JP Morgan. A lot of smart minds, a lot of great research. And being able to create traditional 60-40 portfolios was wonderful. But actually investing and actually doing the work that allows you to walk through markets like what we're experiencing now with a lot less volatility, I think has been helpful. We have a viewpoint that clients should not just think in terms of stocks and bonds. And I think if you're doing that, it's antiquated. I think that the Barclays Ag is negative 8% roughly year to date. You've got the S&P and NASDAQ down in double digits. If that's what you're investing in and both are down, you're really going to struggle. We think that you've got to be looking at other asset classes in order to benefit. And whether you're a smaller client or a larger client, it feels like that's the right way to do it. Was there anything that you took from some of the time that you spent at these more traditional bank wealth management complexes? as some of the key insights, because it's fascinating to go from one of those places, which has access to alternative investments in various ways, shapes, and forms, and how it's informed how you've built Manhattan West. I think the first thing I would take away is this idea that you've got to have really smart people. Tom Lee, who used to be at JP Morgan, is an incredible equity strategist. I still read Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market. The guy's phenomenal. David Kelly from JP Morgan. But those are the positive things that you take away from it. Maybe the things that you take away that could be different is you could have folks that are part of a big bureaucracy and they lose sight of this idea that every position matters, every person in the enterprise matters, and you could have a lot of overhead at big companies like that where folks get paid a lot of money and they don't really do anything. I experienced that with folks that just weren't great. For us, we look at every position. We want everybody to be exceptional and we want really smart people. It's one of the funnest things about our company is just geeking out over conversations from the real estate guys or the private equity guys on a deal or venture, or what we're doing in space investments. So I love that stuff. It's fun to bring those bright minds together and engage. Yeah, I think that what this gets at is a little bit of what we discussed in the beginning. Traditional wealth management business, you span the market, but you don't necessarily have 
access to deep insights by being in private markets and investing in it in the way you do. You can't necessarily replicate a traditional bank complex of the equity research and the strategists and all that, but you get some really interesting insights. If we go up 40,000 feet, this is all part of the evolution of the wealth management space from you were at a more established firm, maybe not a wirehouse, but we're seeing a lot of brokers break away. Yeah. How does this all fit in to the evolution of the RIA or wealth management space? And how do you think about that? industry trend? Well, I think a couple things. Years ago, when the RIA business first started, the idea that those folks would compete with a big firm was kind of ridiculous. And then you had the original forerunners into doing the RIA business. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, these are great businesses. Like Bel Air Investment Advisors, those guys spun out of Goldman or Merrill, wherever they had been, and they created a great business that over time has grown and they bought it and sold it and what have you. But that's a very respectable firm. Folks like that showed a path of how you don't have to be aligned with a big firm. And so in my mind, when we're competing for business and what we're able to do or a very, I think, astute advisor, you want to have the handcuffs off to some extent. You're seeing that in the trends of the bigger wirehouse advisors are leaving and moving independence. That trend toward independence and toward RIA is obviously alive and well. And I think it's going to continue to grow. Do you think many of the advisors who break away from the wires, are they often the ones who are more sophisticated in the world of alternative investments and They want to break away because then they can have more freedom in terms of the types of things that they're doing on the investing side? I think so. There are very big advisors at called Morgan Stanley Private Wealth and Merrill Peabig. And for some of those guys, they're so institutionalized and for good reason, they can't leave. But for some of them that do break away, they get it. They get that you have to be investing in alts, that you have to have a point of view in what's happening in these different asset classes. So lends itself to that RIA space. What made you comfortable breaking away and saying, we're going to build effectively two businesses? They obviously have a lot of synergies, but you're building a wealth management business and you're building an alternative asset manager, which I want to get into in more detail, but this is the building block and the foundation for that discussion. When we launched the firm, we launched with five people. We had an idea of where we wanted to go, but we were a traditional firm. The idea was that was the baseline of where we were going to start, but it was not going to be the end. We were constantly trying to disrupt ourselves, trying to tear ourselves apart and figure out how to do it better. It really became a starting point toward the evolution of where we wanted to go. We looked at what was happening in the world and you saw, I use this word and I don't think it's a word, but I keep saying sameness. You could find 10 RIAs and they all do the same thing, say the same thing. They're just very similar. And so we said, okay, if that's where the baseline is, let's push three steps ahead of that and figure out what folks really want. So we added business management, we added tax, we added insurance and planning and just started adding more stuff to create an ecosystem to allow clients to say, hey, yeah, I do want that. I don't want that. I always say we don't force anybody to take any of the other things we do, but if you want it, it's there. And the clients that do take advantage of it, they're our most evangelical about how positive the service is. So it's there for the taking. In the context of business building, because I think there's two pieces to this conversation. There's one is the actual business building of a wealth management firm and an alternative asset manager, which you do both. 
Then there's the client side. I want to first focus on the business building side. What are the benefits of the way in which you've built the business as a wealth manager? Because generally it's great annuity businesses. Effectively, clients are generally pretty sticky. You're making management fee year after year. But that's generally with these businesses it. You've added these other things around it that make it a value enhancer to the business. How have you thought about that in the construct of being a business builder in this space? You know, it's funny. I often describe the firm to different people as a series of startups. The first startup was just to put the flag on the ground to be Manhattan West and then start up business management, start up a tax practice, start up a real estate group. Not that we're going to do it, but our real estate group could exist onto itself. I always take the position of, all right, what's the case study for why we want to build this division? And then how do we execute it? And it always starts with hiring really smart people. From a building block standpoint, the guy that leads our real estate group is phenomenal. He's done what we do at a much higher level. We've thought of our entire firm as one where we always want to hire people that have been successful at a much higher level than where we're at. One example is our COO. The guy was a deputy COO at Citadel, much bigger than Manhattan West. Grabbing someone like that allows us to punch above our weight class. That's the business building element of it, is having a mindset of let's hire really smart people, really talented folks, and then let's just execute on each of these divisions and have them work together. It's fascinating as you think about what this business can be and then the synergies you have. And obviously in the tech world, you talk about upselling clients, you talk about retention of clients, you talk about network effects of clients or virality, telling other clients about your services. And you have all of those things in that business. What you've also done is to some extent, built much more than a wealth management business. You've seen Iconic kind of do this a bit too. They started with a wealth manager and then they've built a fund management business. And then the Apollos, Blackstones, et cetera, of the world, they haven't gone the wealth management world, but they do have a suite of services, businesses on their alternative asset management platform effectively that forms that group. Yeah. How do you think about that model as your business? Because the reality is, and apologies for being blunt, but this is a brilliant way to go from a 1% or 50 basis points to 1% a year fee business to one in 10 or two in 20, which is significantly better business than the wealth management business in and of itself. Yeah, no, it's funny. That comment brings to mind Brett Messing. I don't know if you know him from Skybridge, but he was at our office. He's a friend. And I said, I'm not I'm trying not to not just be an RIA. He's like, what's wrong with RIA? You don't like the 15 times multiple? I'm like, no, it's not about that. I think there's a better way to build it. Certainly revenue is something you think about when you're creating businesses, but we just felt like taking a step back this whole idea of wealth management and I'm going to be your financial advisor and I'm going to pick these managers and they're the best managers. I just think that's a flawed, I think it's a broken model. I think it's intellectually dishonest. Not that people are trying to be dishonest. What I mean by that is the idea that you're going to pay me to go pick a bunch of managers and then, oh gosh, three of them were terrible, so let's fire them. I always say, you know what? You should be firing the person that picked the managers, not the managers that didn't perform. And so our whole point is that when we build these alternatives, which I'll talk in more detail about, it's basically saying, look, we're fully leaning into the idea that these are our proprietary strategies. We are fully leaning into the idea that we're going to stand behind the performance. And if they don't work, then you should fire us. But so far, things have worked. And that's, to me, how you become a good financial advisor, how you become a good investor. 
Like our real estate deals that work out, that's a wonderful thing. If I just handed the money to Starwood Capital and it just did okay, and by the way, people do that. Like, well, it was Starwood. I just allocated a Starwood. How could you be mad at me? And in this case, we're saying, no, look, all the responsibility lies with us. We're going to make sure we deliver a return on your capital. And that's how we've thought differently about those asset classes. It's a really interesting construct for bringing in high quality talent to various alternative investing strategies, whether it's real estate or venture capital or fund of funds, crypto, late stage privates, whatever it may be. Because oftentimes people in those worlds may be great investors, but they don't have access to capital. But right. it seems like you've bridged that gap and solved that piece of the puzzle for them because you have this captive pool of capital that you right. can then allocate to these best in breed managers who can then execute on their strategy. Is that a fair way to think about it? I think so. I would say that just as a disclaimer, we don't force anybody to invest in our strategies. We offer them that opportunity. We have to relations folks that raise money from folks that aren't just private clients, but we represent to private clients. Hey, listen, this is what we're doing with our money. I'm personally putting money into this and here's why. And it is a great way of integrating and launching these other services that we've done. And we like the way that fits. We like to be accountable for the performance of it. Are you also seeing a push towards the alt space in terms of client interest based on age and client interests aligning with, hey, I want to be in private markets because I'm younger. I understand technology in a different way than maybe a different generation does, or I understand crypto in a different way than a different generation does. And, and they could be right or wrong, but that client interest is driving the demand for certain types of asset classes that you want exposure to or products, types of things like that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is going mainstream. It's doing that. And you could actually see this interesting reverse effect where places like Apollo and Blackstone, who've tr traditionally raised from institutions, are now saying, hey, we've got this huge IA private client network out there. Why don't we go try and get access to that? And so you see those groups now swimming toward this kind of client pool. Our observation is that that client pool is getting more sophisticated. It's becoming more mainstream to be involved in alternatives. And yeah, to have folks in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're like, I feel like I should be investing in crypto. How do we do it? That's kind of the beginning of the shift. You're starting to see a recognition of folks that want to understand digital assets. And you're finding folks that say, God, yeah, what are we doing in venture? 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you just didn't see that. In 2008, sitting at Bernstein, were people calling me saying, what are we doing in venture? It just wasn't happening. Are you finding that your alternatives offerings are, are an acquisition engine for you and are the reason why clients are coming onto the Manhattan West platform as wealth clients as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think folks that recognize that there's an interesting opportunity, maybe say, hey, gosh, I've got an advisor at XYZ firm, but yeah, tell me about that deal you did with Formula One. And then after getting to know us, they're like, I think we want to do more with you guys. And we're getting more clients because they like the interesting deals that we're doing. It's definitely a channel for us. I've often thought about the alt space as like more traditional alt. So that's some of the things you mentioned, private credit, private equity, venture, late stage private companies. Then there's also a bucket that I call the alt alt world. So that's things like NFTs or art or sports cards. How far out on the alts frontier do you think 
you'll go in the wealth management world putting some of these more alt-alts in a client's portfolio? I love that question because now we're getting into some interesting stuff. I don't think you have to be invested in timber or down in whatever New Zealand, but if you look at what classic cars have done in terms of appreciation over the last number of years, it's been a great asset class. But how do you access that as an investor other than if you have a collection yourself? So we're thinking about ways to do that. Art, as you mentioned, interesting asset class, right? Stevie Cohen and all these folks are buying these pieces. And you look at how that asset class has risen in value. I think you'll see us do some things. Again, I have to be careful about what I talk about here. But we're working on like a roll-up of kind of a wine storage business that's rolling up all of the managers of wine storage companies around the country. It's a private equity company, but it's within a unique area. We're looking at private jet management company that manages fleets of aircraft. Those are esoteric. NFTs, we have a kind of white glove service around digital assets so we can help folks custody through a separately managed wallet, NFTs and and crypto and what have you. We do that on a discretionary or non-discretionary basis. So now you're getting into some interesting areas that we're getting a little bit of inbound inquiry on. Those are areas that we'll move into, but open to ideas. Do you think that they have a place in investors' portfolio? And how would you think about them? Would you think about them often as being uncorrelated to traditional assets? Or in some ways, I think crypto actually brings up an interesting point. A lot of younger investors want to invest in crypto. And to some extent, they're treating it like, like retail stocks. They're investing in equities. The names that they know and understand similarly to how they're doing it in crypto. And there has been some level of correlation. Do you think as culture merges with finance, where younger people look at all these different assets they can invest in, do you think they will end up being more correlated than maybe some of the data has suggested and also some of the way in which people have thought about these assets, that they are uncorrelated, therefore it's good to have some access or exposure to these assets? So on the first part regarding how should everybody have access or how should they have access, you have to be a qualified investor, and accredited investor to be in these asset classes. But for growth capital, if you think equities for the next 10 years are going to do better than some of these other risk assets, I might beg to differ. I think we've had a big long run in public equities. So for the next 10 years, that probably wouldn't be my first choice for where I think growth comes from. In terms of correlation, sadly, you saw a lot of correlation in all the digital assets around risk assets. So as equities went down, digital assets went down and correlation was like 100%. By the way, fixed income also went down at the same time. So I think if you look at what happened in March of 2020 with the pandemic downturn, everything went down. If you look at even 08, the financial crisis, most asset classes went down except munis and, and what have you. But different times. I think cycles over time present different risk metrics. When fixed income yields are at zero, there's only so far it can go down. (laughs) Unless you believe in negative interest rates, which I didn't think we're going to get in the United States, you couldn't get hurt there. But if you're talking about does crypto go down the way emerging market equities go down? Yeah, they're probably going to go down in a correlated downturn. So you talk about certain investors being able to have access to these assets. You mentioned earlier that very few investors were really privy to these these funds, investments, et cetera. Now, thanks to many of these technology innovations in the alt space, these market structure innovations, the iCapitals, the Allocates, the Republics, the cases of the world, how much do you think that has impacted 
in a positive way, people's ability to access alts and a firm like yours, how we've had many of the companies on our podcast and you in theory could be a customer or user of them. How have you thought about that from the customer side in terms of the kind of innovation that's happening on the tech side of alts? I think as you know, because you're a sophisticated fintech investor, I think that part of the business is going to continue to be disrupted. We're building Manhattan West in a way that would not be disrupted. We just felt like we had to keep driving towards service and not be in a moment where a robo-advisor can push you out. I think you're going to continue to see the cases of the world, the ICAPs, they're going to grow in market share. Those are good offerings. There's a place for those type strategies with other firms, because what we're doing is undertaking the build out of these alternative platforms is not an easy undertaking. That didn't happen overnight. On that point, and to bring the conversation back full circle to something you said in the beginning was that you said you want to be different from many other wealth managers. The sameness that pervades in the industry is something that's fine, but it also makes it hard for firms to differentiate themselves as wealth managers. When you have the iCapitals cases, et cetera, of the world, everybody's getting access to the same offerings. So therefore, how do you think about that in the context of being good for the industry, but also like then again, reverting to the mean of sameness versus what you're doing with building out and undertaking much of this stuff on your own dime in your own way. Yeah. How do you think about the balance of those two things, both as your own firm and then more broadly as part of the industry? I think the industry is huge. It's a big TAM. One of the things about wealth management is that it's a highly fragmented business. The ICAPs and, and the cases of the world, they're going to fill that void for the traditional RIA. Where I like what we're doing is when I was at JP Morgan, they had the quote unquote best managers in the world. You're going to get Nelson Pels and Third Point and all the big managers you would hear about in the Wall Street Journal. But those are big firms. Those are multi-billion dollar pools of capital. I like our ability to execute with a smaller pool of capital because I just think he could be more nimble. Not to say that they're negative and they're bad, but I just like our chances of curating our own outcome. And I like the idea of being a first to market with an investment strategy as opposed to being a fast follower. If I'm in an RIA firm and I go, oh, I want to start doing alt, okay, boom, I got ICAP. Well, guess what? You're just like the other 20 firms that signed up for ICAP. Again, not that there's anything wrong with that because that's the way you might want to do it. But we felt that a more organic strategy of building our own businesses was something that was going to be part of our bigger plan. And that's really a significant part of our core build out. Why do you think many wealth managers have not pursued building this business in the same way that you have? Because what you're saying makes a ton of sense. Also, maybe the obvious point is it's not easy. But right, w- right. why do you think that's the case? Because this model is a great idea. I was quoted, I think someone called me, I forgot the periodical, but asking me about Iconic. And I was had a lot of positive things to say. Now, they had a ton of capital to deploy. When you have a ton of capital to deploy, you can start to think differently about building out your platform. And they did it in a way that is similar to Manhattan West. Not that they copied me and not that I copied them, but they said, let's just build our own venture fund and have our own investments. And I think it's it's hard to do that. They're up to like 60 billion now, I think, and started with maybe 5 billion, which is no small number. It takes a lot of work. And then ultimately, remember, if it doesn't work, you're responsible so a lot of managers, a lot of RIAs, a lot of wealth managers say, well, look, the farther I can get away from getting fired, the better off I'm going to be. And, and whereas we're, again, happy to take the risk 
of saying, invest in our PE fund. This is what's in it. This is what we're doing. And we're going to stand behind the performance. That's that's our strategy and way of approaching it. But look, again, it takes capital. It takes time. It takes a lot of work. You got to find the right people. It's not a turnkey solution like many of these others. How do you think about finding talent? I think there's three things that we talk about at the firm. One, you have to find people with a great educational background. Number two, you have to find someone with great work pedigree. Maybe they worked at Goldman Sachs. I'm joking. Obviously, you worked at Goldman Sachs, but something like that. But number three, they've got to be great people. And if you have those three things, because there's a lot of people that have one and two, but if you have number three as well, that's really how we think about hiring people. We're looking for exceptional talent and folks that are well-rounded. And I think for us, it's all about the culture of the firm and finding folks that have those core values that match ours, that have the work ethic, that have the character. I always say, I want that person that treats our front desk person the way they treat me and that manages people in a way that empowers them. And that's been, I think, one of our best attributes is that we've just found great talent that meets those hurdles. As you think about how you've built this, if you were to start over, what building block would you start with first? Would you start with wealth management? Would you start with fund business and then become a wealth manager? Because there's multiple ways to build this business. I would do it the same. I would start as a wealth manager because we had a captive pool of capital. And we said to folks, we think we have a good idea for how to deploy the money. I know private equity guys and venture guys that have said, I'm going to go start my own PE fund or I'm going to go start my own venture fund. And then they go, hey, it took me 18 months to raise the money or it took me two years to raise the money. It's not easy to do. And I think it's getting harder. In this environment today, if you were to start a PE or venture firm, unless you're getting seeded with capital, and there are folks that are getting seeded, but it's just a lot harder to do. So I think the way we started it is the way I would do it again. So then we talked about where you were. Where are you going? Yeah, man, that's the funnest part. My wife laughs. I wake up at like 4, 4.30. She's like, why are you getting up? I'm like, I'm just so excited about today. We are trying to imagine that our firm in a few years will be multiple billions of dollars in each of these asset classes, that we will have substantial businesses in private equity in our first, second, third fund, that our venture funds one, two, and three will continue to grow both in the underlying investments, but also in fund size. So we'll get exponentially larger. So you may have heard me talk about, we want to be like an Apollo or like a Blackstone. And that's really the vision of what we're trying to be, a multi-billion dollar investment management firm that has a private client business that is a one-stop shop for people. I love that aspiration because there's so many ways you can go with this business and so many things you can add on to it. On that point, I always like to end this podcast asking everybody what their favorite or most interesting alternative investment is. And given that you do so many different things, this is probably going to be an interesting one. So for you, what is that? One specific company or one asset class? Whatever you want it to be. It could be an investment. Some people have said their own company. It could be whatever it is. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Well, you know what? I have two sons and I always say I love my boys equally, not one more than the other. And I will say I love our investment funds and our strategies equally. So it's hard for me to pick. I guess in the interest of playing it safe, I'll say that I like our company as an investment. We started with zero and I think we have some significant growth ahead of us. And so I'll take the easy way out and answer it like that. Well, this is actually an interesting discussion with more depth. 
do you value this business or does this business get valued differently than a traditional wealth manager because of what you've built? Oh, absolutely. We've been approached multiple times by acquirers. And look, we have a significant amount of carry included in our funds that inures to us. We have scale in each of these businesses that we're building. If it was just a $500 million RIA with 5 million of revenue, you'd apply a multiple to it and you'd have your number. Here, it's that type of math equation plus all the other things. We definitely think that there's a much different multiple applied to the enterprise value. And we're leaning in toward doing more fintech oriented stuff. So we'll see if we can even move the needle further upward. I actually think the wealth management space is one of the really interesting spaces to invest into. You've seen the innovation with the roll-ups. We're actually investors in a newer age roll-up that's trying to be tech enabled. And I think that whole world is really undergoing a lot of innovation and business model innovation too. And if you do things the way you're building them, you could build a really interesting business. Yeah, thanks. Well, we're trying, but yeah, I'd love to hear more about that business. That's really what we keep talking about is that tech-enabled businesses will be the businesses that survive into the future. On that point, this could probably be a whole other podcast in and of itself, but I've talked with wealth managers who think about technology a lot. Do you think that technology innovates away the advisor in many respects? I think it can, and that's part of why I think you have to build the tech so that it supports the advisor and doesn't take the advisor away. But look at Vise AI. Vise is trying to do that. They're trying to be a full-stop solution for advisors. And there's other solutions that make it easier for advisors to just run an entire practice. But uh, yeah, that is a longer conversation. That's a second podcast. We're going to have to have you back on for part two. Talk about that kind of stuff. That'd be great. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Lorenzo, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Congrats on what you've built brilliant concept and idea and you're now executing on it hey thanks michael appreciate you having me and i look forward to doing it again likewise thanks for listening to this episode of alt goes mainstream i hope you enjoyed it you can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com and follow me on twitter at at michael sidgmore and at goes alt thanks a lot and have a great day we're going